840 here. All right, we're heading into the Shabbat. And, and what better time to have some empathy for our ruling elites, right? About time we have some empathy for the American intellectual. Right, think about what a nightmare his life is, right? You, you think you've got it hard, mate. Well, think about your, your typical American intellectual, all right? These people are overwhelmingly on the left. They have an adversarial attitude to the beliefs, customs, traditions, outlooks of most of their fellow citizens, all right? Across the whole spectrum of basic social policy issues such as capital punishment, prayer in schools, suppression of pornography, swift and effective enforcement of criminal law, busing for school racial balance, and so on, their views and the views of most Americans could hardly be more opposed. So let's think about the nightmare of the typical American intellectual, all right? His nightmare is that public policymaking should fall into the hands of the people, right? If the people ever coalesce into a coherent nation, all right, they'll be able to push back against elite power. And the typical American intellectual, typical American elite, has very different perspectives on life from your, your typical American. So your elites don't want public policymaking falling into the hands of the people. So how do do an elite maintain power? Well, they have to make allies. Now, if the people are united, then the elites are stuffed. But if the people are divided, right? Diversity means we don't have much in common with our fellow citizens. Then the elites can make coalitions and retain power. Let's see what Tucker Carlson has to say. Well, they waited until Friday to do it, but the Biden administration has finally released a version of the documents they used to justify the police state raid on Donald Trump's home two weeks ago. Unfortunately, it's heavily redacted. In a moment, we'll tell you what is in that warrant and what they seem to be hiding. Here's a clue, a lot. But first, good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Happy Friday. Every year since the 1970s, the State Department has published a document called World Military Expenditures and Arms Transfers. You probably haven't read it, but it is interesting. It's a detailed accounting of global arms sales, what weapons were sold and where they wound up after they were. The U.S. government published this report in the interest of transparency and then continued to publish it through multiple politically charged scandals and conflicts. That would include through Iran-Contra, two separate wars in Iraq, and all 20 years that we occupied Afghanistan. A report like this would be especially useful to have right now, maybe critical to have, as the Biden administration sends billions in high-tech military equipment every month to corrupt oligarchs in Eastern Europe. Where are all of those weapons systems going? We should know the answer to that, but we don't know. Because this year, for the very first time in half a century, the Biden administration has stopped releasing that information. They never explained why they stopped. They just stopped, and no one pushed them. Now, you'd think this would be a scandal if there's one thing the news media exists to do it's to fight for the release of relevant government records. Because in a democracy, you have a right to know what is being done in your name, but not anymore. That information is classified, Mr. Citizen. So you don't get to find out where those billions of dollars of weapons that you're paying for are going. Who's getting them? What are they doing with them? You don't get to know. You don't get to learn about anything. About Ashley Biden showering with her father. You can get arrested for that. You don't get to know how many FBI assets were in the crowd on January 6th and what they were doing. As we just noted, you don't get to read the affidavit justifying the FBI's indefensible raid on the home of Joe Biden's primary political opponent. In fact, you don't even get to know why you're not allowed to know because that information has been redacted too. What are you, a Russian agent? Stop asking. 
Didn't used to be this way at all. It's unrecognizable. A lot has changed in a very short time. So it turns out, looking back 18 months, the 2020 election was the most consequential election of our lifetimes. You assumed Joe Biden was incapacitated and couldn't change much. Well, true, he is incapacitated, but the people behind him most definitely are not. They are more ideological and more aggressive than ever. Now it turns out among those people is our largest and most heavily armed federal law enforcement agency. That would be the FBI. The FBI is not allowed to insert itself into domestic politics. That would violate the U.S. Constitution. It is completely illegal. But for several years, it has become increasingly clear that, that is exactly what the FBI is doing, actively working on behalf of the Democratic Party, mocking the rule of law, subverting our democracy from within, far more effectively than any foreign government ever could. If that sounds like an overheated claim, and it definitely does sound like an overheated claim, unfortunately, you should know it's entirely true. We know that for a fact. Here's how we know. And we learned it yesterday. Weeks before the 2020 election, the FBI pressured social media companies to kill the story of Hunter Biden's laptop. Why? Because that was a story that might have prevented Joe Biden from becoming president. That happened. And we know this not because the New York Times investigated it. They didn't bother. They didn't bring you a special report in yesterday's paper giving you the details. The New York Times would never do that, even if they knew it to be true. And they may. No, we know this instead because Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook blithely admitted it almost parenthetically during an interview with Joe Rogan. Watch this. There was a lot of attention on Twitter during the election because of the Hunter Biden laptop story. The New York yeah, Post. Yeah, we had too. Yeah, so you guys censored that as well? So we took a different path than Twitter. Um, I mean, basically, the background here is the FBI, I think, basically came to us, uh, some, some folks on our team, and was like, hey— um, just so you know, like you should be on high alert. There was the, we we thought that there was a lot of Russian propaganda in the 2016 election. We have it on notice that basically there's about to be some kind of dump of of um, uh, that's similar to that. So just be vigilant. Oh, so Zuckerberg. Just to be clear, you just saw it, but let's just unwind what we saw. Zuckerberg was asked, "Why did you censor?" the story about Hunter Biden's laptop. And he said, some folks from the FBI came to us and indicated there was about to be a dump of Russian propaganda. Now, there's some rewriting of history going on in which some are claiming, some at Facebook are claiming, actually, that the visit from the FBI had nothing to do with the Hunter Biden laptop. But the answer you just saw was in response to a question about the laptop and the censorship of it. And the answer was Russian propaganda, Russian disinformation. Neither of those terms has an agreed upon meaning. They don't actually mean anything. What's Russian propaganda? Is it true? That should be the only question that any news or information company, including Facebook, ever asks. Is it true? Truth is the defense. No, it's Russian propaganda. Again, a term without a meaning. So we wanted to know more. We reached out to Mark Zuckerberg after that interview, and he responded to us to his credit. Zuckerberg confirmed that the FBI didn't put any of these warnings about Russian disinformation or propaganda in writing. Oh, well, of course they didn't. <laughs> Nothing in writing. And that makes sense. If you were the FBI, you wouldn't want to put that in writing because you were, of course, lying. At the moment, the FBI was warning Facebook about a propaganda dump that obviously would include Hunter Biden's laptop, they had Hunter Biden's laptop in their possession. 
So they knew perfectly well it was authentic, as anyone who looks at it does. We have looked at it, and it's instantly obvious this is real. And, of course, we now know conclusively it is real. So that laptop was not censored because it was propaganda, whatever that means. And by the way, the FBI should never be in the information control business anyway. It was censored because it might hurt Joe Biden. And the FBI is the government agency that pushed for it to be censored. Has that ever happened in the United States? Ever? That is the definition of police state behavior. A government agency independently decides it's going to determine the outcome of a supposedly democratic election. Hmm. So why is it nearly two years until we learn this? Well, it turns out Facebook is a very political place. The founder of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, paid hundreds of millions of dollars to affect the outcome of the election. Famously, we've reported on that. And then, of course, there were Democratic Party operatives working within Facebook. So on October 14th, the Facebook communications official and former Democratic Party operative called Andy Stone claimed that Facebook was censoring this story because of Facebook's, quote, standard process to reduce the spread of misinformation, whatever that means. But that was their initial explanation. It wasn't until late October that Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of the company, publicly mentioned the FBI's involvement for the first time. And here's what he said. We relied heavily on the FBI's intelligence and alerts, both through their public testimony and private briefings that they gave us. He testified to that. But at the time, Mark Zuckerberg didn't mention anything but the FBI warning Facebook about, quote, Russian propaganda specifically. Why didn't he say anything? That's odd, because in October 2020, right before the election, weeks before a presidential election, every media outlet in the country and then candidate Joe Biden himself were using the very same line. It's Russian misinformation. It's propaganda. And not surprisingly or coincidentally, dozens of, quote, former intelligence officials were saying the same thing. We can't play this enough. Here it is. When you look at this uh, computer uh, store owner in Delaware who allegedly received Hunter Biden's laptop, that is more in line with it when you think about somebody who's a useful idiot. That's kind of the entry point that is kind of, a, again, a classic indicator of the potential uh, presence of disinformation. Right-wing media has been focused on Hunter Biden, this laptop uh, that intelligence mm -hmm. officials have warned or is likely Russian disinformation. Law enforcement is actively investigating whether the alleged Hunter Biden emails are linked to any foreign intel ops. The story is preposterous. So we're supposed to believe that Hunter Biden in a drunken stupor dropped off his laptop in, I guess, apparently QAnon repair office. So those are just shills who will say whatever they're told to say. Of course, no sober person would take them seriously. And we missed the bigger story, too. We'll admit that. At the time, we imagined that this lie, that the laptop was Russian misinformation, was being pushed almost exclusively by Democratic partisans. But that's not true. It was much worse and much more threatening to our democracy, in fact, utterly corrosive of our democracy, than that. Again, our media attributed these claims to former intel officials who wrote a letter about Russian disinformation. But no, it wasn't just former intel officials spreading that lie. It was members of the U.S. government, federal bureaucrats, people who work for federal agencies, senior FBI leaders who are still at the FBI. They lied and they knew they were lying and they never took steps to validate this claim that it was Russian propaganda or Russian disinformation. On this show in October of 2020, we interviewed one of Hunter Biden's business partners, a man called Tony Bobulinski, and he verified the authenticity 
of that laptop. He had firsthand information. He had texts and emails that were on his phone and also on the laptop. So we reached out to Tony Bobby Lewinsky last night and we asked him a very simple question. Did anyone from the FBI ever call you or your lawyer to find out, since your name was all over the laptop, if those texts and emails were real? If they wanted to know if this was Russian disinformation, they would, of course, call you. But not one of them ever did. They knew it wasn't Russian disinformation. They knew it wasn't propaganda. They knew it was completely real, and they lied about it. Here's what Bobulinski told us in October of 2020. On May 13th, that email was sent from James Gillier to me. I didn't generate that email. James Gillier generated that email. And in that email, James Gillier goes through intimate detail of what each individual's requests were from a compensation perspective and how the equity in the enterprise would be divvied up. Very important, May 13th, that email was generated by somebody else to me. In that email, there's a statement where they go through the equity. Jim Biden's referenced as, you know, 10% doesn't say Biden, it says Jim. And then it has 10% for the big guy held by H. I 1,000% sit here and know that the big guy is referencing Joe Biden. Um, it's, that's crystal clear to me because I lived it. I met with the former vice president in person multiple times. And I had been meeting and talking with Hunter Biden and, and uh, Jim Biden and Rob Walker and James Gillier. So to note the obvious, that's not some cable news mouth breather who's giving you his stupid partisan opinion about Hunter Biden's laptop. That's Hunter Biden's former business partner who can prove he was Hunter Biden's former business partner. No one disputes he was Hunter Biden's former business partner. His name, his emails or texts are all over the laptop. And yet somehow the FBI, the agency that sent a dozen agents to investigate a rope in a NASCAR garage, the agency that used hundreds of agents to hunt down grandmothers from the election justice protest on January 6th, that same agency couldn't spare a single agent to make a telephone call to Tony Bobulinski to ask questions about the laptop. You claim it's propaganda, it's misinformation. Why don't you call the guy who's on it and ask him? They didn't bother. This is what the FBI has become. An agency that seeks to exert control over the information that you read in the media. What is this? Well, it's terrifying. And again, this isn't speculation. We just had it confirmed in public yesterday. These are people whose main goal is to ensure that they never lose power in Washington. Interfering with our elections and not simply by hiding information. Resorting to force because they know they can get away with it. Joe Biden's chief political opponent right now, Biden says he's going to run again. Trump's indicated he's running in, would be Donald Trump. And so they're targeting them. Is anyone noticing this? John Paul McIsaac, the computer repair shop owner who first obtained the laptop, says an FBI agent threatened him so he wouldn't go public with the laptop. In case you've forgotten, watch. The FBI met with me at my home and asked me about my concerns. I voiced my concerns. And they, I then shifted and said, hey, can, can I just want this out of my shop at this point? Just get it out of my shop and give me a phone number I can call should somebody come looking for it or wants to harass me about it. And they're like, yeah, we can't do that. When they showed up, instead of bringing a tech guy with them, they brought a subpoena. And they're like, yeah, we're just going to take everything. 
I was a bit uncomfortable, a little nervous, but then excited at the same time. So I kind of cracked a joke. I said, uh, don't worry, lads, when I, when I write the book, I'll leave your names out of this. And that's when uh, Agent Mike turned around and said, oh, it's in our experience, nobody, nothing ever happens to people that talk about these things. Yeah. So in a free country, no one who obeys the law is afraid of law enforcement. That's true. No one should ever be afraid of the FBI except people who know full well they've committed federal crimes, period. But in this country, let's be honest, everybody's afraid of the FBI because you know exactly what happens to you if you tweak the nose of the FBI or if you annoy Joe Biden. You get raided. You get hauled into the street in leg irons. You get banned on social media. As Jen Psaki said from the White House podium last year, quote, we're flagging problematic posts for Facebook. Oh, so that's the White House same administration, which oversees the FBI, telling social media companies who's allowed to speak. It happened to Alex Berenson. It happened to Donald Trump. Now we know what happened to the New York Post. And the people running the FBI, people who did that, are still there. This is a huge problem. This cannot be ignored any longer. John Ratcliffe is the former director of national intelligence. He knows an awful lot about this. Um, Mr. Ratcliffe, thanks so much for joining us tonight. It, and you may know enough that this wasn't shocking to you, but I think to a lot of people, this was legitimately shocking. The FBI shows up at our biggest news outlet. That's really what Facebook is. It's a news outlet three weeks before the election and says, in effect, don't print this story because it might hurt Joe Biden. Well, Tucker, I was actually surprised to hear uh, Mark Zuckerberg say that because what he related the FBI told him was exactly the opposite of what my conversations with the FBI director himself at the time were about. Look, we knew uh, when uh, Adam Schiff was uh, in October of 2020 uh, talking about Hunter Biden's laptop as Russian disinformation and using his platform as the chairman of the Intelligence Committee to, to mislead voters about that, we knew that, that that simply wasn't true, that it wasn't Russian disinformation, that there was no intelligence. And, and discussions between my office, the director of national intelligence, the FBI, and the attorney general. Okay, let's, let's start to enlarge our moral selves, our spiritual selves, our, our empathy, and, and let's have some, some empathy for... For our ruling class. I mean, this this is just a lot of uh, critical commentary about our ruling class, and uh, I'm just afraid of how destabilizing this might be. In contradiction to that, in dealings with Facebook or telling uh, if whistleblowers are to be believed, telling FBI. Well, you just want tech companies to operate like feudal lords, that, that they've got their own domain where, where they're sovereign. I mean, tech companies don't actually want to be in the business of constantly censoring their users because that is a huge suck on resources and it makes your users unhappy. So it used to be big tech, you know, liked, you know, kind of a libertarian ethos where it was a very big tent, you know, pretty much anything you said was, was okay. I, I remember I used to be able to post, post a link on, on my Facebook to the, the daily stormer, but, Times have changed. Governments have cracked down. The left in particular has cracked down. And so big tech is responding to cues from power. Now, Hunter, Tucker Carlson was just talking about in a free society, you should not be afraid of the police. You should always be afraid of the police, even in a free society. right? You should always be afraid of power. Like if you believe in God, you should have a little bit of fear of God. I'm not saying you should just walk around in some kind of defensive crouch or you should be afraid to leave the house because you're that afraid of police. 
but you should always be concerned about power. You should always have a little fear about people who can hurt you. If you're married, you should have a little bit of fear of your spouse. If you have a boss, you should have a little bit of fear of your boss. You should certainly fear anyone who has a gun. And you should have fear about uh, law enforcement, anyone who can wound you, right? You should have fear. When, when you're driving down the, the road, you should have a little bit of fear of, of other drivers, knowing that they can absolutely wreck your life if uh, they, they make uh, a bad decision. Okay, so I'm rereading this terrific book by Ronnie Goldman. Conservative claims of cultural oppression, the nature and origins of conservophobia. And so let's think about how we got to this time and place. So it used to be in the traditional world, we had God and God's power, and it was concentrated in certain people like a king, certain times like a Sabbath, certain places like Jerusalem, or certain actions such as bringing a sacrifice. So God was understood as being embedded in the world, but he was more embedded in some places and at some times than others. So medieval Christians experienced the sacred through sacred objects, sacred relics, charged amulets, right? Things that could be manipulated to one's material and spiritual advantage, and often with the recitation of the appropriate chants. Right? There are also especially holy places to which one made pilgrimage. There were holy times, such as a religious festival celebrating the resurrection. All right? So you had secular time and you had eternal time. You had the sacred and the profane. So the sacred was not this alternative realm completely removed from everyday life, but there were those points in everyday life where the eternal kept breaking through into secular space and time. Now, the blurring of the natural and the supernatural through an openness to wonder to God, to the divine, to the sacred, meant that the distinction between the mind and the world was also blurred. So the modern liberal elite understanding of individuals as disengaged, autonomous, strategic agents, you know, be, beholding the world objectively, that would have been completely incomprehensible to the pre-moderns. So in the enchanted world of 500 years ago, the, the clear line between the physical and the moral was not drawn, right? The, there was no clear boundary around us. We were porous, right? That there are all sorts of things and agencies that were extra human that could alter or shape our spiritual emotional condition, not just our physical state. Right? So the spiritual agencies didn't simply operate from outside the mind. They helped to constitute us both emotionally and spiritually. So traditionally, we easily recognize how the emotional malevolence of another human being might be invasive of our space. Right? We could not firmly disentangle his attitudes towards us from our own image. And these distinctions still carry on today. So the liberal elite perspective on people is that they are primarily individuals. Ideally, they are autonomous, they are strategic agents, and they are buffered, all right? They get to have their own autonomy separate and apart from other people. And, and what do you call those people <laughs> who don't believe in government regulation? Uh, not libertines. Oh, Libertarians, libertarians, all right, libertarians take this on with like their, their devotion to the non-aggression principle. Like unless someone is directly physically harming you, unless someone is, you know, directly 
objectively causing you harm, then people should be allowed to do what they want. Well, this is not a traditional perspective. All right. So the, the traditional perspective is that what's going on in the, the house next to me affects me. Like if, if two men are engaged in homosexual relations next to me, that is creating moral pollution. That's certainly the Torah's perspective, that when man defies God, that causes moral pollution. When moral pollution builds up and builds up and is not cleansed, all right, then disaster ensues. And so as an individual in an increasingly polluted atmosphere, you either have to fight the pollution or get the heck out of there so that you don't get drowned in the pollution. So in the traditional world, the enchanted world of pre-modernity, there was, there was no notion of the buffered strategic autonomous individual all right, who operated with his own agency and was not affected by anything that did not directly objectively harm him. So the, the modern perspective, the modern elite liberal perspective is that of the buffered individual, all right? There's like a buffer around the individual. He gets to make choices. He has, he has rights. While the traditional perspective is that individuals are not primarily individuals. They're members of a tribe or a nation or a group. And whatever rights may be accorded to them will depend upon what the, the tribe or the nation or the group can afford to extend at a certain time. But people are not primarily individuals with rights. They're primarily members of a tribe. And when you're a member of the tribe, you don't have this buffer around you, all right? Your, your world is much more porous. What's going on elsewhere in the tribe is going to affect you. And so you have an interest in how other people behave themselves, right? You don't want you know, moral pollution building up in the, in the home next to you. So conservatives, traditionalists still see themselves as much more porous than people on the left who see themselves as buffered, right? See, hear the difference between porous and, and buffered. It's an important distinction, right? If, if my life is porous, then what you're saying and what you're doing can affect me. And if as an individual, I enjoy a, a buffered existence, then whatever you're doing that does not directly hurt me, all right, is uh, irrelevant to my best interests. Man, I have not been able to get one comment in the chat for about 15 minutes. I, I just uh, completely lost it. I mean, I just thought you're eating out of the the palm of my hand. Okay. So when we feel depressed or melancholy today, we get told, oh, it's your body chemistry, or you're hungry, you're angry, you're tired, there's a hormone malfunction, there's some kind of biochemical uh, solution, just take this pill and you feel better, right? You, you get to experience distance from your feelings, right? That things don't really have to be this way, they don't have to have, you know, this type of meaning. It just feels this way. And it's all the result of some causal action utterly unrelated to the real meaning of things. So to be modern and particularly to be on the left is to be disengaged, right? We, we understand the mind-body distinction, right? And, and the physical is just, you know, a contingent cause of, of the psychic. But this is not the traditional perspective, right? So the modern self the modern liberal self is buffered and the earlier self is porous in the enchanted world. So for the modern buffered self, self, you get to take a distance from, you get to disengage from everything outside your mind. 
right? And your ultimate purposes are those that arise within you. And the crucial meaning of things are those that are defined in your own psyche in response to what's going on. Now, for the poorer self, for the trad, the source of the most powerful and important emotions are outside our mind. We don't see this clear boundary between us and everyone else. So as an autonomous individual, we see that, uh, you know, we don't have to allow things to get to us, right? We're, we're buffered, we're protected, we're, we're almost invulnerable. We are the master of meanings. That's the modern perspective. We are, the individual is the master of meanings. While for a traditional person, meaning is something that exists outside the individual and the individual either taps into it or does not. So the modern left-wing notion is we, the autonomous, strategic, disengaged, self-controlled, self-reflexive, meaning uh, uh, reflexive back on yourself, understanding yourself, is, is how we operate, right? Now, for the traditionalist who believed himself possessed by a spirit, right, that was not some theoretical proposition. He experienced that with the same visceral certainty with which he experienced his physical body in which the spirit was, was lodged. All right. So in the traditional world, you could hear much more often the voice of God. There were visual hallucinations, right? God manifested in visions. There were the appearances of the, the Virgin Mary. Right? Spirit possession was not, you know, some kind of psychiatric form of disassociation, right? These were not hysterical symptoms. These were special gifts. These were powers that came to lodge in one's body and showed themselves off by speaking strange tongues through the mouth of the one who is possessed. So that's the traditional enchanted world. The modern world grows ever less enchanted. So the difference between the modern buffered self and the pre-modern poorer self is not reduced to differences of belief, which is kind of the modern liberal subtraction account that... The modern self is simply what we've been all along, just subtracting folkways and religion. Right? So it's not that the pre-moderns possessed different religious beliefs than we do, but they were differently possessed by those beliefs. So the traditional perspective is that we're born sinners and our poorest selves cannot be counted on to exercise the kind of self-control that reigning in disorder requires. So the Middle Ages were steeped in the view that there have to be severe limits to the degree that uh, sin and disorder can be done away with in this world. There's an acceptance that uh, sin and disorder are just written into the human condition. So the individual in pre-modern societies lived in a much more coherent world. Now, for the modern individual, he lives, he experiences a whole plurality of social worlds, and so he relativizes every one of them. So... For the modern, the institutional order, the social order has a certain loss of reality because he recognizes there are many different ways to organize people. So the accent of reality for the modern shifts away from the objective order of meaning, the objective order of institutions, to a realm of subjectivity. Right? So the individual's experience of himself becomes more real to him in the modern world than his experience of the so-called objective social world. So the individual in modernity finds his foothold in reality in himself rather than outside himself. For a traditionalist, he finds his foothold in reality primarily outside of himself.
So for the modern liberal, the individual's subjective reality, his psychology becomes increasingly complex and interesting to himself. His, his own psychology has previously unconceived depths. Now, in the pre-modern society, carnivals were not just mere holidays. They weren't just respites from the demands of everyday life. Right? The, the respite offered by the pre-modern carnival was much more profound. It was more than a public holiday. It was a playful interval in which people played out a condition of a reversal of the usual order. So fools were made kings for a day. What was ordinarily revered was mocked. People permitted themselves many forms of license, not just sexual, but also violence and the like. So for the pre-modern, they understood themselves as porous, and so they were able to suspend their daily routines, and that went further than it possibly can for us. Right? Because for them, it extended not only to formal expectations of appropriate behavior, but, as with good and evil spirits, the very depths of one's being. So how did societies, whose citizens were potentially beholden to the invasion of evil spirits and who were resigned to a ceaseless cycle of order and chaos, redemption and sin, how did these societies become transformed into societies where citizens see themselves as strategic autonomous agents? who have ideals of rational self-interest and personal authenticity and entertain strong notions of moral, social, political, and technological progress. The modern liberal left account is the subtraction account, right? The modern person is just like the traditional, the ancient person, but subtracting folkways and superstition and religion, right? We have progressively overthrown the psychological, social, and scientific ignorance of the past that impeded who we really are. Now, on the other hand, the mutation counter-narrative that Ronnie Goodman describes here posits that this social transformation presupposed a more basic transformation in human beings' basic sense of themselves, of their agency. So human beings had to become buffered, right? Get a buffer around themselves to become strategic autonomous individuals because it was the porousness of the pre-moderns, not just their ignorance, that uh, impeded progress. So with the rise of Protestantism, you get this deep religious theological objection to the idea that there are special objects, special times, special places, you know, special penances and masses and events that have you know, a special connection with God, that have a special spiritual significance that is elsewhere absent. But in the medieval point of view, these special objects, times, places, and events Protestant perspective, God's power can't be contained like this, right? It can't be confined in the things or in special times and places and special rights and, and privileges, right? God can't be manipulated through the handling of relics, the supplication of saints, the invocation of chants, the undertaking of pilgrimage, right? This is to deny the full extent of God's sovereignty. This sinfully downgrades God to sinfully elevate oneself, and therefore, or this special times, places, chance betrays true Christianity, whose original mission was to raise human beings above all such relics of paganism. So for the Protestants, all valid Christian vocations, those of ordinary life, of production and reproduction in this world, and the crucial issue is how you live in your day-to-day -day vocation. So the sacred and the secular have collapsed into each other, the monastery disappears, the monastic rules disappear, but now ordinary lay life operates under much more stringent moral demands. 
So the aesthetic and elevated norms of monastic life are now transferred to the secular world. So the work of the Protestant Reformation was to make over the city of man in the image of the city of God through the gradual changing of various ascetic attitudes and practices which were once the province of religious elites, but now bring these into the lives of daily people. So we now reject the notion that ordinary life must be renounced to give oneself more wholly to God. So Protestants abolish these supposedly higher renunciative vocations of being a priest or a nun, but they build then renunciation into ordinary life. So you'll notice that Protestants compared to other people tend to be very self-controlled. So the new Protestantism demands that individuals pursue worldly ends, but in a self-disciplined and renunciatory spirit, without the intensity and the oscillation of personal affect, meaning emotion, that defined worldly engagement in the earlier medieval period. So God has been progressively reconfigured by Protestantism to be a deity who involves himself in our daily lives, not just directly through particularly sacred objects, events, times, places, uh, classes such as uh, clergy, but indirectly through a broader moral order that he has created in the world as a whole. So his glory is announced not through his augmented presence at sacred times and places, but by the wisdom and grandeur of his design, and it is by conforming design that we truly worship God. So Protestantism became the first moralized religion. Understand God in the Protestant perspective, one did it not by directly experiencing his presence, by adapting to the moral plan that God has put into place for us. So living a godly life becomes less and less a matter of, you know, admiring how God reveals himself through special signs, symbols, times, and places, but more and more a matter of inhabiting the world as agents of God, you know, working in the divine system to bring about God's will on earth. So rather than indulging in the spiritual infusion provided by sacred rituals, charged objects, special times, places, Christians now have to discipline their predilections and commit themselves to leading orderly lives in orderly societies, which is God's true purpose for us. So religion becomes less and less concerned with sin as a condition we need to be rescued from through some transformation of our being, and more and more about sin as wrong behavior that can be persuaded, trained, or disciplined to turn our back on. All right? So this is the modern world. All right? Now our elites are constantly trying to tame us. Right? It used to be the elites were content to let the rabble be the rabble. But now the elites are no longer content to allow the rabble to be the rabble. They have to constantly persuade, train, and discipline the regular folks so that they don't act out. So think about Andrew Tate. I mean, he used to be like a feudal lord. Like He, he, was, he was in control, but the elite said, we have to tame this guy. He violates our norms. Right, he's just way too wild, and now Andrew Tate has to abide by court morality. So in a democratic form of government, the elected people have all the power because, obviously, they were elected. They speak for the population. So in the executive branch of government, the president has the final say, because he's the elected one there. All the bureaucrats work for him. They have to obey him because he speaks for the population of the country. That's how the system works. So in the federal government, the president has the constitutional authority to declassify whatever he wants. They don't have to follow procedures set by Congress, separation of powers. The Supreme Court established this back in 1988. But we learned today from the DOJ search warrant affidavit that the FBI is looking into the, quote, unauthorized possession of documents at Mar-a-Lago under the Espionage Act. 
So today, this seems insane. If you think about it for a minute, Joe Biden was asked, how is that possible? And of course, he doesn't know. He doesn't know anything, including what day it is. So he responded by mocking the question. Well, I just want to know, I've declassified everything in the world. I'm president. I can do it all. Come on. I'm not going to comment on because I don't know the detail. I don't even want to know. I'll let the Justice Department take care of it. Yeah, I don't know the details. It wasn't coordinated with the White House. Actually, it was coordinated with the White House. It was. What liars. So what is in this affidavit, this heavily redacted affidavit released today? Well, Harmeet Dillon is the the person we go to for questions like that. She is, among other things, the chairwoman of the Republican National... Okay, thanks, Hamid. Really appreciate you coming on the show. All right, let's get back to Ronnie Goldman. All right, so in the Protestant perspective, we come to see ourselves rather than sacred relics as the proper bearers of the divine will. Right? So we have the excarnation of religion, right? So the incarnation is God becomes flesh. The excarnation is our flesh becomes dedicated to to the divine. So Protestantism moves us from an era in which religious life was embodied, right? You put on special things, there were special times, special places, special people, right? So religion was embodied and enfleshed into an era where religion has become more and more in the head. So faith in God was originally experienced as a concrete mode of being, the opening up of one being towards another, but it later became a proposition. So for Christians, Protestants in particular, do you believe in God? It's a proposition. While for Jews, God is is something that uh, where familiarity breeds contempt, to quote John Updike. So faith in God has become a proposition. It's an intellectual assent to a proposition, to statements, to creeds and systems. And so religion has come to mean believing the right things and conducting oneself accordingly. So it's a more abstract, reflexive, and uh, internally disciplined self. So Protestantism developed a religious duty in people to behold the world in non-religious terms, because the only way to properly worship God, right, to properly worship the unqualified transcendence of a deity who had not so abase himself as to embed his divinity in the natural world, right, was where it became the target of, of human contrivance. So Protestantism cultivates a more regulated and predictable mood structure in oneself, right? So out of Protestantism, we get the ethos of the disengaged, self-controlled, self-reflexive self, right? You showed that you were fulfilling your religious duty by beholding the world in non-sacred terms. So Preoccupation with purely secular worldly goods became a source of religious meaning rather than religious dereliction because there now developed the sense in which a secular mindset constituted true submission before the divine imperative. So one way of understanding modern religions is to distinguish between those religions which have or have not adapted themselves to the demands of enlightenment rationalism. So Orthodox Judaism, by and large, has not adapted itself to the demands of enlightenment rationalism. Other forms of Judaism have. Uh, Trad Christianity is not fully adapted to the demands of enlightenment rationalism. Mainstream Christianity has. So our modern secularized outlook cannot be explained as arising straightforwardly out of the erosion of traditional religious belief, because this outlook first develops 
through a transformation of religious sensibilities that are themselves religiously inspired, right? So we get the the renunciation built into ordinary life. So humanism crept up on us through its intermediate form, Protestantism. So both the deism and the humanism was made possible by earlier developments within Protestantism. And so this intermediate form on the road to secularism of an impersonal God revealing himself through natural laws alone was, was absolutely key. We could not have become capable of doubting religion as such before religion itself generated the capacity for such doubt by setting itself against the residual paganism represented by Roman Catholicism. So if you view the world as an enchanted, magical place pervaded by spirit forces, under Protestantism, that became understood as an insult to the transcendental sovereignty of God, which had been obscured by Christianity's earlier compromises with paganism and so developed its embodied, undisciplined, and unreflective forms of spirituality. So this is the soil, Protestantism, in which secularism first grew. The world's first fully secular societies came in Protestant societies, Northern Europe and England. So Protestantism largely expelled the sacred from worship and social life. It drove out the enchantment of the world, drove out spiritual beings in the world. The world became progressively voided of its spirits and meaningful forces. So we got this buffered identity. We got this sense of ourselves as self-possessed autonomous strategic agents. And so this is not just the logical byproduct of casting off certain mistaken beliefs. It's a transformation of our sense of ourselves. It's the growth of a certain kind of religion that promotes decentering our lives right, from sacred objects and sacred spaces to become disciplined, rational, disengaged subjects. So religion develops a self that is defined by its awareness of the possibility of disengagement and re reflexivity, understanding yourself. You know, having a sense that you have self-possession, that you have a secure inner mental realm, that you're no longer open and vulnerable to a world of spirits and forces which cross the boundary of the mind. So from a traditional perspective, the world of spirits, forces, and uh, moral contagion and sin is much more real and visceral than from a modern liberal left perspective. Right? It's much more in a traditional perspective, a sense that what my neighbor does behind closed doors, even though it doesn't directly negatively affect me, it creates a contagion that is not good for me if it is, you know, gross what's going on next door. So the modern strategic autonomous agent, right, operates with careful planning and calculating, right? And these are not aspects of timeless human nature. These are dispositions that developed historically, initially as a form of Protestant religious discipline. So think about Andrew Tate, and think about the old feudal nobility, right? Andrew Tate is like, you know, part of the the old, you know, medieval feudal order. Earlier this week, when in a matter of hours, virtually every social media company on the planet decided to shut down a guy called Andrew Tate. We were not experts on Andrew Tate. We're too old, but we wanted to hear what they don't want you to hear. So we sat down and had a long interview with him, which is on Fox Nation. We played part of it yesterday. But there was one line in that interview that we wanted to bring you because it was just interesting. And it made us think we've been thinking about it ever since. Here it is. Andrew Tate. 
And you said people don't have enough respect for themselves to analyze the ways they were lied to. What is that's an interesting sentence. What does that mean? It means that if I was fooled, if I was one of the people on social media who was genuinely purporting the idea that people should be locked in their homes nearly indefinitely because of a common cold, if I was fooled like that, I would feel deep shame. And I would really take some time and look in the mirror and analyze who managed to trick me to such a degree, how my mind got so poisoned, how I got plagued to such a level. And I would feel deep shame because I would understand that my words had repercussions and that I have been purporting a worldview or a narrative which has been genuinely destructive. And I would sit there and I would be upset and angry and sad. And I think I can't believe they've managed to do that to me. And I can't believe that I bought into it and did it to other people. But unfortunately, there's people out here who a year ago were running around screaming at other people in the street to wear a mask, who are now not wearing a mask themselves, despite the fact that COVID still exists. And they don't have enough self-respect or enough respect for the truth to even feel sorry or shameful for what they used to do. It's, right. it's incredible to me. Don't you have any ounce of honor? Like, look what you've done to the world. You were screaming in people's faces. Now you're out here without a mask on yourself. Okay, that's just insane analysis. The idea that COVID was no more dangerous than a common cold. Uh, COVID was 100 times more dangerous than uh, ordinary flus. Uh, COVID, according to the most comprehensive academic study we have so far, cost about uh, 16 years per death. Right. For the first time in history, we've had a dramatic reduction in life expectancy because we've had over 20 million deaths in the world due to, due to COVID. And uh, yeah, some people recommended masks at a certain time and place, and then they took them off. Right, Everything is, is weighing up all sorts of uh, different, different factors. So yeah, I, I wore a mask when, when I was around other people. And now you find doctors saying that uh, they're no longer asking their kids to, to wear masks at school. So Washington Post columnist Leanna Wen, right? Not just any doctor. She was Baltimore's health commissioner for years. She became a professor of health policy and management at George Washington University. She has an MD. She has a master's in health policy while at Rhodes Scholar. She's not a COVID denier. And she says, for the first year of coronavirus, my family and I were extremely cautious, which is a reasonable response. All right, to protect the baby, my husband and I pulled our then two-year-old out of preschool. We socialized outdoors only at a safe distance from others. I didn't go to synagogue for the first year of COVID. And then I got vaccinated and I went back. All right, we limited indoor activities to work and grocery shopping. I was never without my N95 mask. After coronavirus vaccines became available to adults, I wrote that vaccinated people could relax their precautions based on their level of risk tolerance. My tolerance remained low because of my unvaccinated kids. I still avoided indoor restaurants, mastered indoor gatherings, unless they required both proof of vaccination and recent negative tests. So what changed? Well, everything changed last winter with the arrival of Omicron. This variant is so contagious with this derivative strain such as BA5, even more so, that preventing COVID became nearly impossible. So before Omicron, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimated that one-third of Americans had been infected with the coronavirus. By the end of February 2021, after the first Omicron surge, or is that 2022, that share climbed to 60%, right? meaning three out of four children. 
so containment of COVID was not reachable, coronavirus is here to stay. Well, wearing a mask will mitigate the risk, right? Well, now that we have this new indefinite time frame, the benefit risk calculus and mitigation measures shifts dramatically, right? So this doctor was willing to limit her children's activities for a year or two, but not for their entire childhood. So I began thinking of coronavirus the same way I do everyday risks such as falls, car accidents, and drowning. Of course, I want to shield my children from injuries. I take precautions. I vaccinate them, but I won't put their children, my children on hold to eliminate all risk. So Omicron is mild, milder than previous variants. The likelihood of severe outcomes is much lower now than it was during the Delta and Alpha surges. The odds of developing long COVID are also lower. Vaccination continues to provide excellent protection against severe illness. So over the past several months, my family has eased back on our precautions. We see other families indoors without masks or without testing. We have resumed traveling and attending events. Our children attend indoor events and indoor play dates. Schools are starting. My children are fully vaccinated. We do not plan to limit their activities, and we will not be masking them in the classroom. I accept the risk that my kids will probably contract COVID-19 this school year, just as they would contract the flu. As for most Americans, COVID in our family will almost certainly be mild. Like most Americans, we made the decision that following precautions strict enough to prevent the highly contagious BA5 will be very challenging. Masking has harmed our son's language development. It's limited my kids' extracurricular and social interactions that would negatively affect their childhood and hinder my and my husband's ability to work. So life is a series of trade-offs. She's making her choices, choices for young children with eyes wide open. And other people will view these trade-offs differently. And so she says, my family's decision not to mask our kids should not be mislabeled as being anti-mask. We're not going to stigmatize other parents and caregivers for the difficult choices they make. So not very impressed with uh, Andrew Tate there and uh, Tucker Carlson. People and stop doing it. Anyway, that whole interview uh, is available on Tucker Carlson. Today it's on Fox Nation. By the way, Tate told us there's one platform still willing to host him, and that's Rumble. We thought it'd be interesting to talk to the CEO of Rumble, Chris Pavlovsky, who joins us now. Chris, thanks so much for coming on. So everybody cancels this guy because he's a criminal of some kind, an uncharged criminal. But you charge in and sign him up. Why'd you do that? Well, you know, when you take a look, like right now, if you go to Google and you search Andrew Tate video, you're going to get all the platforms that banned him showing content from him. You're not even going to get the content from him of what he is saying. This is th this goes to that narrative control that he was saying. It's very correct. Um, it is completely stacked against him. Um, you can't see what he says. You have no idea what he's talking about because you're only getting what they want you to get. Um, and the only place he is right now to hear him is on Rumble, and you can't find it when you search for Andrew Tate video. And that, that's a huge problem. And what we're standing up for at Rumble is allowing people to say whatever they want, whether we disagree or agree with what they're saying. Right. And I think that's a fundamental right that we have to give to, to everybody in America. That is like what our democracy stands on. Well, that's what the country was founded on, of course, was freedom of conscience and freedom of speech. Um, really quick, they told you, they told everybody that this guy was just completely off limits. He's a criminal. And anyone who would watch this is also a criminal. Were you intimidated at all when you publicly came out and said, I'm signing him up? 
No, I am not going to get bullied like that. If you see what's happening right now on the internet, this is transcending politics. A lot of Rumble's growth came from yeah. politics, but now we're transcending politics. You have people like the Nelk Boys, Steve Will Do It getting canceled. You have people like Jake Paul, Aiden Ross screaming from the top of the hill for free speech. People are really waking up to what's going on right now, and we're just happy to be in the middle of this. I don't know how it's going to shake out in six months right now, but Andrew Tape showed, showed up onto our platform yesterday. And he did a live stream today, and he had 100,000 people watching him uh, concurrently. So this is, a, this is a major moment, I think, right now in, in the tech world. And how it shakes out in the next uh, six months is going to be very telling. But we have major influencers out there right now finally waking up to this, and it's now transcending politics. You can't have a free society without free speech. It's really that simple. So I didn't experience many consciously negative side effects from a year socially isolated i just read a ton of books if it gone on beyond a year yeah th that would have really gone to me but i took a year and just devoted myself to reading books and as soon as i got vaccinated i got back out into into the world all right let's get back to ronnie goodman and his book on conservative claims of cultural oppression so think about andrew tate as like an old feudal lord right so the nobility used to be able to rule their little kingdom, but then power increasingly became centralized starting the 16th century. And so the old feudal nobility, like an Andrew Tate, found itself progressively emasculated militarily, economically, stripped of the glorious self-sufficiency that was the hallmark of an earlier, more anarchic period. And the world around us can be constantly changing, right? So in, in one circumstance, it makes sense for me to work for myself, right? I work for myself, self-employed for about 10 years as a blogger. Then the world can change and it makes more sense to go to work for someone else, right? Sometimes glorious self-sufficiency is the best way to go and then circumstances change and it's not. So for the nobility to retain any vestige of their former power and prestige now required not physical prowess, not military excellence, but cultivating the right relationships with the founts of power. And this meant taking up full-time residence in the absolutist monarchic court. So this is the transformation of warriors into courtiers. We get a political transition that entailed a whole series of profound psychological changes that eventually spread beyond the monarchic courts and profoundly affect the identity of the modern West kind of shaping our basic concept of what it means to be civilized. So one difference between conservatives and liberals is that liberals are much more likely to act courtiers and conservatives are much more likely to act like independent warriors. So when you're at court, right, you're no longer a free man. You're no longer the master of your own castle, right? Your home is no longer your castle, right? When you live at court, you must serve the prince. You must wait on him at table. You live surrounded by other people. You must behave toward each of them in exact accordance with their rank and with your own. You must learn to adjust your gestures exactly thanks to the standings of people at court to measure your language exactly, even to control your eyes. So we now have a nightclub that uh, is prohibiting staring. If you start staring at people, you can get in trouble. Right? So there's a new self-discipline that is growing at court. It requires an incomparably stronger reserve that is imposed on people by this new social space in these new ties of interdependence. So if I were to get married, all right, I would have less freedom in the things I say and when I live stream because I would develop all these new ties of interdependence. If you develop strong friendships, right, and they become really important to you, 
right, you are going to be constrained somewhat by these new ties. So in this new situation, the level of consideration that people expect of one another increases by orders of magnitude. Right? The sense of what to do, what not to do in order not to offend and not to shock others becomes increasingly subtle and more binding. And, and that's true of life in 2022. So when you were the master of your own domain, when you when your home was your castle, you could occupy your social position with relative security. And you're not obligated to banish coarseness and vulgarity from your life, right? But Andrew Tate, like the rest of us, increasingly have to operate as though we're living at court. We live in a world where our interactions take place in a stock exchange, which our value is continuously assessed so we can no longer afford the old freedom. So gone are the days in which joking can lead to mockery and from there to violence in a span of a few minutes. Gone are the days in which one could leap from the most exuberant pleasure to the deepest despondency on the basis of the slightest impressions. So what matters now in this new order are other people's impressions rather than one's own. The foremost task becomes impression management, which means self-management. And for most of us, our foremost task is impression management, which means self-management. This is the new world. So a new self-consciousness emerges on the scene, not because essential human nature has been liberated from the confining horizons of a benighted past, but because we have a new social milieu that creates new inner depths out of outer necessity. So it used to be that your social and political standing were determined by how you could wield a sword. Now, your standing depends upon continuous reflection, foresight, calculation, self-control, precise and articulate, articulate regulation of your own moods, knowledge of the whole terrain, human and non-human, in which one acts. So when you're a blogger and you had your own domain, right, your, your standing was determined by your skill with, with writing and the power of the topics that you were writing about. But now when we operate on social media, we need more continuous reflection, foresight, calculation, self-control, precise and articulate regulation of one's own moods, knowledge of the whole terrain, human and non-human in which one acts, right? People now have to mold themselves more deliberately than in prior days. We become increasingly disposed to observe ourselves and others. So we live in an increasingly intertwined world which everyone is inevitably confronted and compelled to observe constant vigilance, to subject everything you say and do to minute scrutiny. So this is when Western man becomes psychological, right? This is where we get a more precise observation of others and oneself in terms of motives and causal connections and a vigilant self-control and perpetual observation of others become the elementary prerequisites of social self-preservation. One's Social status now depends on words rather than swords and stylistic conventions, forms of social intercourse, right? Esteem for courtesy, the importance of good speech and conversation, right? Clothing, all right? These things assume a new importance. Good taste achieves a new prestige. Members of court listen with growing sensitivity to nuances of rhythm, tone, and significance to the spoken and written word. Every course vulgar plebeian expression now needs to be eliminated right replaced by language that is courtly that is clear transparent and precisely regulated so the old self-aggrandizing impulses when you just operated your own blog right these impulses that used to express themselves brutally coarsely and openly now must assume a much more refined form right you can take pride in yourself and, and pride 
in uh, loved ones and contempt for others, but this must now express itself much more subtly and obliquely. We need the uh, manipulation of the intricate shades of social meaning. You're probably wondering, what does uh, Michael Beckley and Hal Brands have to say about the emerging conflict with China? 1.3 billion people along coastline in the heart of rising Asia and a government that is willing to um, to trash the environment and to pave the way for big business to come in. It was just it was just too good of an opportunity. And so American multinationals flooded into China. And so that kind of kicked the can down the road in terms of a strategic reckoning. I think it's interesting to remember that when the George W. Bush administration was coming into office, they initially were talking about China as a strategic competitor, as well as not wanting to do nation building. But then, you know, 9-11 happens and the United States is catapulted into a series of wars in the Middle East and is actually trying to get Chinese cooperation, one, to get UN Security Council authorization for various military interventions. But second, just so that China's not causing problems in Asia while the United States is bogged down in the Middle East. So there's just a series of events that kind of delayed the reckoning. And it wasn't really until the 2008 financial crisis that a number of things came. Okay, you're probably wondering what's going on with Andy Nowicki. Dostoevsky's notes from underground says, I am a spiteful man. He says of, of, he says several things of himself. I'm a sick man. Uh, I am uh, a Colin spiteful Liddell. man. I think there's something wrong with my liver. I'm not going to I'm not going to say that, that Colin Liddell is sick or that there's anything wrong with his liver. But I think the second thing there, I am a spiteful man, applies very well to Colin Liddell. My impression of him is that he is a man who's essentially motivated by his spite, and his spite takes him takes him where he wants to go, uh, and, he, and he follows it uh, faithfully. His spite is his muse. And <clears throat> at some point in time along the way, Colin Liddell developed this, this hatred for the alternative right scene, uh, or the dissident right scene, generally speaking, um, uh, with, with a few exceptions here or there, but mostly he just he just came to see came to think that it was all uh, just bogus and and uh, that and full of uh, people who were essentially worthless and and um, <laughs> you should see his what he calls his Dickipedia. Uh, he he actually has a catalog of you know the names of people who are affiliated or associated with the alt right or the the dissident right uh, and you know it's like he gets the final say on all of these people and and you know just more, more often than not unfortunately his assessments. Uh, tend towards the uh, witlessly uh, insulting. He, he likes to call people tards of one kind or another. So so-and-so is a Nazi tard. So-and-so, somebody like me, I'm a conspiratard. Um, <laughs> and this is this is just... Uh, but but he has this, um, this interesting, this fascinating kind of energy to devote to uh, writing, you know, uh, scathing commentary uh, on, you know, this whole host of people. You know, and it's it's worth looking at. I would say his Wikipedia, as long as you take it with you know a a, a, a whole shaker full of salt, um, just to see uh, what what's brewing in this guy's head right now, as far as how uh, how spiteful how spitefully he looks down on and despises uh, the people who he, I guess he would once have called his uh, his compatriots. I don't know if he ever really would have felt that way, but but at least at one time he wasn't uh, putting them down and talking. And, and I got to say that in, in this dispute, to the extent I understand it, I side 100% with Colin Liddell. I used to think of the alt-right and the distant right as lively, funny, with, with a lot of impressive intellectuals. And then 
I increasingly became disenchanted and and disgusted with it. So I think I've gone on a very similar trajectory to Colin Liddell. So one trajectory I noticed with a lot of people who got into the dissident perspective is that they realized that society elites, academia were lying to them about certain things such as such as race, differences between men and women, differences between different groups. And then they took from that the idea that the elites and the academy just were lying to them about everything, and they just automatically started siding with every distant perspective. And you particularly see this with regard to COVID. So the distant right, by and large, the less intelligent members thought, oh, you know, the elites are just lying to us about everything. COVID is just the common cold. The more intelligent members of the distant right like uh, Greg Johnson or Richard Spencer realized, no, COVID is far more serious than the common cold. And so I do notice, I mean, I don't use the term conspiratard, but it is dominant in the distant right. And so what was a lively, fun movement has become pathetic and ridiculous. So I guess all my sympathy here is with the Colin Liddell approach. Some form of tards. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the suffix tard uh, he, he was not something he seemed to use all the time, um, which is a rather witless suffix. I, I really think he could do better than that, but he doesn't choose to. So there you go. And he has a very broad. Oh, okay. So I do really differ with Colin in in his use of, of things like tards and his use of put downs and uh, the, the the mockery and the like the really nasty things that he says about about people goes in for the the personal insult so i do disagree with colin on that i largely agree with with colin on his overall ideological perspective on what's happened to the alt-right definition of who who a nazi tart is um i should i should add um and he's you know been critical of me if i go on somebody's podcast or somebody and ricardo says we're calling the people who are right about covid conspiratorial conspiratorial no i just made the very clear point i don't like that language of conspiratorial now, I do think it's moronic. Anyone who thinks that COVID is no more serious than the common cold, I think that is a moronic perspective. Now, are you able to hear the difference between saying that someone's holding a moronic perspective and calling them a moron? I hold moronic perspectives. Everybody holds some moronic perspectives, right? Just because one says something that's moronic does not make one a moron. It's just one aspect. We contain multitudes. Somebody's, uh, uh, some, somebody's uh, uh, broadcast on whether their sub Substack channel or um, or their uh, BitChute channel or, or wherever. If this person has any kind of affiliation. And Ricardo says, laughing my ass off, the more intelligent members of uh, the distant right with regard to COVID. Well, here's what I mean by the more intelligent members. People who actually read academic papers, right? people who actually read contrary points of view, people who actually read books, people who... D- actually do the hard work as opposed to those who just listen to podcasts or watch videos or you know read the this tweet or, or that tweet uh, you know, if this person is in any way what could be called uh, judeo judeo critical uh, then he is a nazi card <laughs> now um i'm not i don't know i don't think i would be categorized as somebody who spends and i definitely don't believe in using terms like nazi tard Ricardo says Luke's biggest mistake was crusting the New York Times. I mean, no, no one who doesn't have an agenda 
could could watch this show and think that I just you know implicitly trust the the New York Times. I say as many critical things about the New York Times on this show as I say positive. That there's no source of authority to which one should just uh, submit. No human source of authority to which one should never question. Right? All human sources of authority are flawed, including the New York Times. So, what does it mean to trust the New York Times? So I trust that I'll find some interesting articles in the New York Times. All right, that's that's the extent of my trust. There's a lot of time talking or thinking about the Jays. Um, it's a it's an issue for for some. Uh, it's not really something that I focus on. I understand that it's a complicated issue. All right, and so you know, I'm uh, I'm willing to cut people some slack uh, in ways that it doesn't seem like uh, Colin Liddell is able to or willing to these days. But conspiratard. I'm the I'm the conspirator because I believe that Pizzagate is real. Um, and- <laughs> okay, yeah, I do think uh, thinking that Pizzagate is real is is uh, I think that's wrong, but I definitely wouldn't use a term like conspirator. And others, you know, uh, like the the uh, the man I spoke with, uh, Johnny Monoxide, uh, who I had an interesting interview with uh, um, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, of the Paranormies channel, uh, you know, another conspirator, conspirator and a Nazi tard, I think uh, uh, Colin would say. But whatever. Um, I think what's more disturbing, what's more uh, annoying and uh, distressing is the way in which uh, Colin has pretty much adopted the, the whole uh, Western media's uh, obsession with uh, the Russians and how uh, you know, they're, and they're endure, the enduring Russophobia of the political and media establishment of the Western world. I mean, and this goes beyond, I can understand being critical of of uh, Putin for invading Ukraine. I see that as a very complicated issue. I, I just never remember Colin Liddell being like Russia-phobic, so I'm a little skeptical of that. Let, let, is uh, Andy interesting here about well, uh, Richard Spencer? I have a series of articles there entitled uh, Fauci's Wheeling Executioners. Oh, which let's, let's skip that. Just because uh, he sort of dug my uh, my fiction at the time. He he wanted to, he remember had me on to discuss the Columbine and there was never any particular time when the three of us were really exactly on the same page. The uh, talking about Colin, Richard, the, uh, and Andy. Page, and I became a regular right. contributor, the and eventually became an editor. Same thing happened with Colin Liddell. So the three of us, Richard Spencer, Colin Liddell, and myself, were for a time uh, the sort of the, the triad uh, that voiced the um, the the sentiments behind AlternativeRight.com. And there was never any particular time when the three of us were really exactly on the same page uh we were all different people motivated by different things with different perspectives yeah it's hard to imagine richard colin and andy hanging out together and feeling comfortable with each other um i think that richard took me on uh you know as a writer and at first and then as an editor just because uh he sort of dug my uh my fiction at the time he he wanted to he remember had me on to discuss the columbine pilgrim um and he also thought that it was interesting that I was a Catholic. I think that uh, he thought somebody contributing to Alternative Right, who was also a Catholic, you know, made for made for an interesting uh, uh, point of view, because at that time it was a very broad tent sort of uh, notion or perspective that I think he was going for. Um, and for a couple of years, you know, Richard Spencer and I were were associates, and uh, I would even at some point maybe have called him a friend. Uh, he uh, he and his organization. And Ricardo says, Luke, are you going to stop boosting if Dr. Fauci and the prestige media tell you to stop boosting? I will stop boosting 
if that becomes the dominant medical perspective, right? If uh, the, the dominant medical perspective says stop boosting, then I'll follow that advice. If the dominant medical perspective says get a booster shot every month, I'll follow that advice. I will go with the dominant medical perspective. Funded my trip to, uh, to South Africa, which was done in the, uh, in the winter of... Well, what will it take for Luke to stop boosting? What is the threshold of evidence? Well, I haven't seen any evidence yet that is particularly compelling. All right, just a bunch of cranks. So give me uh, some, some meta-analysis of the studies that show that boosting is a bad idea. Right? When, when that becomes the dominant paradigm within the medical profession, then I will happily adopt it. What was the winter for the Northern Hemisphere, the summer for uh, South Africa? Back in December of 2011, I uh, uh, went there to write an article for what was basically the ill-fated Radix journal, um, but I don't need to go into all of that. Uh, so after, after Richard lost interest in alternative right and, and uh, after he basically took the site down without warning, um, Colin Liddell and myself became became united just because we both still wanted to keep the site running. We, we still fought. Nothing unites people more than disgust and dislike, even hatred of uh, a third party. At the time, the term alternative right had uh, a, uh, you know, it did not have the kind of resonance that it has now. Today, you say alternative right or alt-right to just disparage someone the same way uh, you use the term incel, uh, very similar. But at the time, it actually meant something it had. It carried a resonance which, uh, you know, which was reflective of an interesting and great point ricardo giving hormones to gender dysmorphic teens to stop puberty is the dominant medical perspective and i disagree with that dominant medical perspective so in some things i will accept the dominant medical perspective and other things i will reject it okay i i get to uh, choose i don't uh, live my life in all things according to the dominant medical perspective a medley of thinkers um who uh, by no means did, did everybody agree on everything, but I think we, we all had uh, the same. And Ricardo is resorting to lies. Luke Ford supports the medical establishment vis-a-vis -vis trans youth. You will never, ever, ever catch anything I say supporting the idea of uh, encouraging you know, kids to mutilate themselves. So you are just lying. I've never said anything like that. That is absolutely revolting, and you should be ashamed of retailing a lie, Ricardo. Uh, enemies. That is to say, we, we all thought that uh, liberal modernism uh, and its attendant ideologies, feminism, uh, you know, liberal anti-white sentiments and so forth, uh, these were all things that we despised uh, about. And Ricardo says, you're just rationalizing the dominant medical perspective isn't why you choose to believe the doctors on COVID. Oh, so what is the reason I choose to believe the doctors on COVID? I've always had a pretty centrist perspective on COVID. I thought that uh, dissidents should be a part of the conversation. I, I didn't support uh, banning or distant thought on uh, social media. And I didn't accept that uh, just because Dr. Fauci or the CDC or political or medical authority said something that is necessarily true. On the other hand, I didn't automatically accept that anything that medical authorities or politicians say is automatically false, right? That's so easy. Right, Ricardo, you got it so easy. You just accept anything the New York Times says is false, so you don't have to read it and you don't have to struggle with it. You automatically believe that if it's a scientific paper or an academic paper, it's automatically false, so you don't have to do the very hard work of studying academic and scientific papers. You just get to dismiss them all as false. Right? Some of us actually do the work. 
right? I don't automatically accept or reject any particular human source of information. It has to be understood critically. And so I have to do the work of uh, studying an academic paper, comparing it with other academic papers, comparing it with other sources of information, including my own life experience. But you have it easy. You think, ah, oh, if it says so in the New York Times, it must be false. If it's in an academic paper, it must be false. If it comes out of Harvard, it must be false. I don't get to live in this black and white world. All right, you see demons and angels, right? And uh, it's it must be pretty sweet. Like, you don't have to struggle, right? Everything's just kind of laid out for you. If Harvard says it, if uh, globalist bankers say it, all right, then it's automatically false, right? I don't disqualify information depending on who says it. I will try to understand the information critically. Information's not good or evil. Information is either true or false. The, the contemporary scene. Um, so, for a time, it was Liddell and myself uh, keeping the... And Ricardo says, except I've proven right time and time again, New York Times is demonstrably filled with lies. Okay, give me a new source that is not filled with lies. They're all filled with lies. And where have you been right time and time again? Like... Uh, Share, share with us. One of our worldviews accurately predicts reality, the other doesn't. And how, yeah, how have your worldviews accurately predicted reality as opposed to mine? Angels and demons are real, though. You are blind. Well, that's just uh, a retreat into a fantasy world. I mean, I'm sure that belief in angels and, and demons can be adaptive and useful, but there's no way of empirically verifying it one way or another. So, you know, wanting to argue about the existence of, uh, demons and angels is silly because it's a matter purely of faith. It can't be empirically demonstrated. The alternative right going, and that kept that, you know, I feel like I've, I've, I've discussed this before. I think I've even written about this on my, again, uh, on my Substack page. In and Ricardo says, I've been right on COVID, right on the election. Now, you can't actually produce any evidence, you know, beyond someone's tweet or a podcast. So you haven't done any work, right? You haven't uh, struggled with the meta-analyses, right? For you, evidence is irrelevant. You don't feel any compulsion to assemble evidence. You just have your feelings, and your feelings guide you to what is right and wrong in life. Right? I'm interested in evidence, right? and uh, I'm interested in doing the hard work to try to you know, figure out what is more likely to be true or less likely true. You're not interested in doing the work. You don't read academic papers. You don't read points of view that differ with you. You don't read many books. You just have your feelings, and your feelings guide you through life. If uh, you had the evidence that the 2020 election was stolen, you would become the most revered man in the history of the republic. You would have tens of millions of dollars, right? You would be the man who saved America. But you can't be bothered to actually assemble the evidence. Right? You can't be actually bothered to back up and substantiate your feelings. Uh, you just want to make proclamations, but you don't want to do the hard work to back them up. One, one of my articles about uh, what the, the events that led up to Charlottesville from the perspective of a of both an insider and an, and an outsider because I was never you know uh, that inside really um, I was never never really with the cool kids but for a time you know I, I think I played a role in the evolution of the the journal alternativeright.com and then the the, uh, the journal that replaced it after Richard took alternativeright.com down so it's somewhat ironic and somewhat depressing at the same time uh, to reflect on the way things stand right now with the three of us um and I well it's relations with family all right that tends to laugh the longest 
All right. Relations with friends, particularly when you're engaged in ideas, all right, takes a real toll on friendship. If I'm like fighting with Ricardo like every day on a stream or, you know, over social media, all right, that's going to put a lot of strain on, on a friendship. I mean, we're going to enjoy the bands for a while. We'll probably enjoy the challenge for a while. Then one day one of us will snap and we'll probably take a break. So it's really hard to maintain you know, strong friendships in in this uh, absolutely charged atmosphere. Now, Ricardo makes a, a good point here. The most meaningful and impactful aspects of life can't be empirically measured. So, yeah, fair enough. I, I understand that. H how do you measure love? How do you measure faith? I believe I'm the only alternative, uh, uh, really, who's who's left. I, don't, I think I'm the only one who still reflects an alternative voice. Um, and I would humbly offer that if you read or take in i don't know if, if richard spencer uh richard and colin still have an alternative voice right they're not just uh, boring repetitions of what you can find in the new york times now they have emerged away from the alt-right and they now ha despise the alt-right and andy still remains in the distant right but uh richard and and colin are still dissidents or still writes anything. I think he still comments on things. Maybe he's got a. I, I, I admit I haven't followed him that closely over the last few years, but obviously he has betrayed everything that he once stood for, and now <clears throat> he's a big uh, booster of Western liberalism. Although he's, I, I guess the strategy is that he's trying to put some kind of spin on it in some way. I don't know. Uh, it seems it still seems pretty pretty lame to me. Um, and you know he's he's a uh, he's pro-abortion. He's He's, uh, you know, uh, against sexual continence, uh, you know, being a, a, an aspect of culture. Uh, he's, he's essentially a libertine, I think it would be fair to say, culturally speaking, anti-religion, anti-Christianity, all of those things. Um, but I would say that the more disappointing for me has been the turn that Colin has, has uh, taken of late. Colin Liddell is less, less uh, visible. Uh, he's less conspicuous. He's less well-known, like myself. I'm, you know, he and I, Colin and I are probably equally uh as uh, equally obscure i guess or equally known uh however you want to look at it or, you know uh, half full or half empty i, I mean in, in comparison to richard spencer you know we don't have that the, the name recognition but but liddell recently especially over the last couple of years but but I, I would say this has been a trend that's been going on with him you know for maybe the last four or five years um ever since he decided uh to change the name of his site from, well, it was his site, it became his site, he and I were sharing editing duties and then I uh, I sort of kicked it all over to him to, to do the editing because I wanted to focus more on a different kind of writing, namely my fiction writing. Uh, I didn't have the same kind of energy to just write about, you know, the, the passing scene or, ooh, this, this current event or that current event, isn't that, isn't that... So why does Colin have more energy than Andy? It one possible answer is that uh, Colin seems to be a much happier guy than Andy, and this doesn't mean that Colin's a wiser, smarter, or a better man. Right? Andy is not a bad man because he struggles with with depression and isolation, and and you know having a dour approach to life. That may be genetic, uh, circumstantial. It's not about right or wrong, but definitely seems that you know Colin is a lot happier person and a lot more energized person than Andy. This uh, interesting, or isn't this uh, out, outrageous, and aren't we all up in arms about this, that, or the other thing? You know, sort of, since 2016 especially, when everything has gone, you know, every, when everybody's angry all the time, and, and you know, the screaming headlines like it's, like it's a perpetual election happening all the time, 
it's just gotten really old, and I've, I've uh, distanced myself from it. But um, but Liddell, I would say I don't I don't know him that well, but my impression of him is that he is someone he is you know as the uh, the narrator of Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground says I am a spiteful man. He says of, of he says several things of himself. I'm a sick man. Uh, I am. Uh, so uh, Andy says we'll be discussing in. He has distanced himself from uh, Colin Liddell. I sense that uh, Andy's distanced himself from a lot of people. This video is an article from Colin Liddell's new uh, website, the one that I've, I've discussed in, uh, in more general terms uh, in recent videos. Um, but I wanted to take a look at this particular article. Uh, so you can see the title being what it is. Um, now, this is not about the... Uh, character of Paul Joseph Watson. I'm not challenging uh, Colin Liddell on that front. Um, that's, that's entirely irrelevant. I want to look at some of the things that Colin seems to be arguing for in this article subtly uh, um, without so much as coming out and saying it um, and why this caused me some concern. Okay, so what, what we begin with is this. So I'm consistently impressed by Colin's Number one, common sense, and number two, he has interesting perspectives that, that I haven't thought of. This tweet that was put out by Paul Joseph Watson, and the tweet you can read, uh, uh, the tweet basically just reinforces what uh, what's in the picture or the meme, and the meme is, uh, it's written in the Ukrainian colors of blue and gold, um, and it's a reference to, of course, the uh, huge sums of money uh, taxpayer money being uh, sent to uh, help the Ukraine war effort. Not to. Not okay, so the money being sent to Ukraine is not being done out of charity or because people really care about the Ukrainians. It's being sent to Ukraine to weaken Russia, a global competitor, right? So it's not just being done out of you know some warm fuzzy feelings about Ukrainians, right? So uh, the leaders in the in the West, including the United States, they often use. You know, humanitarian and universalist rhetoric while they pursue you know, nationalist goals. Not to try to bring peace to the, uh, to the war-torn Ukrainian region, but to help uh, the war to continue. Right. I, I think that uh, achieving peace in Ukraine is more important than the Biden administration thinks, but the Biden administration is making its own calculation that it's worth it to ruin Russia. I disagree with the Biden administration, but it's not a ridiculous perspective on their part. Being fought and thus lives being lost and and misery uh, continuing in that unfortunate region. So this uh, this picture or this uh, this meme. So the alternative is, oh, if they're miserable in Ukraine, then we have to abandon what's in our own national interest. No, whether they're miserable or happy in Ukraine, you know, great powers are going to do what's in their national interest you'll be cold in the winter because they need it more and what's what this is saying what this is making reference to is the widespread fears particularly in europe right now <clears throat> that uh, uh prices are going to go up even more and uh so heating costs will be prohibitive and people will uh, have to choose between without being too alarmist sounding have to choose between being warm and uh, having food um but uh but the, you know this 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 meme is basically saying your your uh your countrymen your your elected officials have sold you out to their um to further the uh, their uh, the fortune of their puppet state, their, their NATO puppet state. Uh, well, 
I've been surprised by the amount of Western unity uh, on Ukraine. And even if you disagree with how it's expressing itself, uh, on the other hand, you can be heartened by the ability of the West to unite and take some strength from that, what the West would do if uh, China gets out of hand. Uh, that, that being Ukraine, uh, which, without going into too much detail, that, uh, that's an effort that's been uh, um, on the books with uh, neocons and neoliberals and Eurocrats and uh, members of the EU and uh, and so forth and so on um, uh, since what 2014 2015 um, when the uh, when a, a low level civil war essentially broke out in Ukraine uh, because of largely because of the aggressions uh, perpetrated by NATO in that area but anyway. Colin Liddell says, here's a tweet by Paul Joseph Watson. Whether the image is actually made by a Kremlin meme factory or not, it's just Kremlin propaganda. It's just Kremlin propaganda. It's obviously, obviously fake, but still plausible enough to fool a lot of idiots and morons. Uh, you know, the, the typical understated uh, prose of, of Colin Liddell. Uh, you're, you're an idiot, you're a moron. Um, you know, what, uh, what, we've, what readers of Colin Liddell have grown to, grown to know and, well, know. Um, it's just Kremlin propaganda. Let's stop there for a second. Okay. So Colin goes on to say this, this is, this image has been doctored. That's actually taken from this. So my energy bills are not way up. I mean, I'm, I'm probably paying a little more for food, but uh, overall I have not been much uh, personally adversely affected by the rise of in inflation. This uh, image, which is just a poster board and has been superimposed on that poster board. But is that really the issue? Does that really matter? Um, whether this poster is real or not, um, the, the the point is the uh, the message that it's broadcasting, and is the message true or isn't it true? Well, Colin Liddell says here uh, it's just Kremlin propaganda. Let's just say that. Uh, okay, I found something that I agree with Andy on. I, I think his critique here is strong. Let's stipulate that this uh, this this uh, this meme is comes directly from the Kremlin. Okay. The question still remains, is it true or false? Is there a point being made that's a valid point here or not? Yes. Yes. Good point, Andy. Good point, Andy. Colin Liddell says it's just Kremlin propaganda. Um, okay. Maybe, maybe not. But is it true? Okay. And, and as far as whether it's actually, actually, you know, whether it's just a, a superimposed on this other image, that doesn't really uh, seem to matter at all to me. Okay, he goes on to say, PJW, meaning Paul Joseph Watson, has done this so many times now. This is no way, there's no way this is an innocent mistake. He knows it's fake, but he doesn't care. Uh, and then he expresses, again, his, his charming and ever so understated and uh, not vulgar at all uh, um, uh, rhetoric there regarding Paul jo Joseph Watson. Um, of course, if you wanted to simp for the lying little shit, you got to get that anger under control, Colin, really. I mean, she whiz. Um, Okay, you could say, I'm not going to chase down as to whether this is real or not, but certainly not, certainly the sort of billboard they would put up. Okay, um, I don't think it's the sort of, I think this misses the point. Uh, it's, not the, it's not the sort of billboard that, uh, that, that, that the UK government would put up, because it obviously... So it's funny, Annie Nowicki is taking Colin Liddell to task for being strident. And uh, Annie Nowicki titles his video, Colin Liddell shamelessly shills for warmongers. So that seems rather strident to me. You know, it gives it away. It gives the game away. It says, we don't care about you, UK citizens, or, or other, other Western countries that are sending huge, huge sums of money to Ukraine right now, including the United States. This is, I mean, obviously this meme is giving the game away. It's saying, 
we don't care about you all. You, you mean nothing to us. Uh, you know, you're useless eaters as far as we're concerned. We would rather fund our uh, our uh, puppet state, Ukraine, and keep a, a deadly war going there uh, by uh, giving them giving uh, giving them arms. Okay, so this first thing that that he calls simping is not really true, not really, I mean, not really uh, relevant. But then he says, or maybe, yes, the meme is fake, but the point it makes is correct, namely that we are sacrificing too much for the sake of the Ukrainians. Bingo! Bingo! Uh, you know, I wouldn't necessarily put it that way. Um, I think, you know, I do think we should care about the Ukrainians and, and we, should, uh, care, we should show our care for the Ukrainian people by attempting to bring peace to the region, not by funding a destructive homicidal, well, I mean, all wars are homicidal, so I guess that's redundant, but not by funding a war <laughs> that will perpetuate misery for months and perhaps years to come. Okay, but, and so that, this this is the point being made in the meme. Uh, is the meme fake just because it's not really on a billboard? I mean, that, that's just so, that, that's just... Uh... That's just it. That's it. Take care. Bye-bye.